Hello and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 32. I'm one of your hosts, Hector Marrero. And I'm Kip Clark. Today's topic is why studying film is important. And today we have a guest, Iggy Hu. Nice to talk to you guys. We're happy to have you here. So (laughs) how are we going to begin this conversation? Iggy and I took a philosophy class together and we spoke of different ways in which a film could be viewed. One of them was seeing film as a language or as a set of symbols that together create this nonlinear system. And a nonlinear system is one in which two plus two does not necessarily equal four and in which a subtle change of anything completely changes the force of the story. So to start off this conversation, Iggy, I wanted to ask you why you study film and why you think it's important. For me, when I first started film, it's a democratized tool for knowledge. And I think it's important for filmmakers and for people who receive this information to know that with film, if you watch a film, it costs, in China, for example, it costs perhaps $2 to buy a pirated version of a documentary. And if you don't have money to travel abroad, say to Europe, and see what's going on over there to Africa to all parts of the world you will have this vehicle even though it's much reduced to understand things that you don't have the economic means to achieve or to experience interesting so you're saying that it sort of unifies people but also educates them in a lot of ways yes personally and I'll probably reference this a lot I'm in a class right now which studies media and one of the units that we looked at was film and a point that was made is that even if filmmakers aren't necessarily intending to they have an argument or a message that their film is trying to convey that often audiences either misinterpret or interpret correctly do you think there's ever a danger let's say for someone in china watching a film about europe or another place in the world that maybe they miss that message or interpret it in maybe a a Chinese lens and don't fully understand the other part of the world that they're trying to learn about in an open way? Definitely. I agree with you that whenever there's a medium that's liberating, does have the equal power of oppressing people in the way that filmmakers can manipulate the audience emotions very easily and things like that. For me, I think the solution really lies on the individual and I guess that's why we're talking why setting film is important because in our world which is so saturated with information it is very necessary for people to in their individual journeys to slowly learn to discern information for themselves so one of the reasons i wanted to bring up this conversation in the first place is that after studying film i can watch a movie now and dissect it into its different parts and what i think personally is incredible about films is that an immense amount of money is put in to to a whole group of people, large group of people, being directed by usually a single person or a smaller group of people, but all towards the goal of creating a single unified image on the screen. You say that we live in this oversaturated media environment. How do you think an effective film communicates its message within all this noise? 
this is just my personal opinion. For me, when I look at a film, I look for a sort of sincerity without all the references to all the other information. Because nowadays, we would say that American society lives in a postmodern world. And part of the implication of this is that whenever we speak, we have to constantly be aware of the influences and be aware of why we're here, why we got these resources and influences from and how we recognize our films as a compilation of our past experiences watching other films. Sorry, I think I lost my train of thought a little bit. No, that's okay. What's the rest of your question? How can you best get across your message while living in an oversaturated world of media? As a filmmaker? Mm-hmm. I think if you're a filmmaker, you're necessarily manipulating people's emotions with the films you make. And part of that, I think it's a two-way street that the filmmaker needs to acknowledge the fact that the images are compiled intentionally to make the audience feel a certain way. And it's also the audience's responsibility to not take everything in completely. And nowadays, at least in our environment where we're college students who have all this access to information, the amount of information we absorb is good in the way that all the diverging opinions are absorbed into this one person and we have to discern and try to organize them and try to say, oh, in this film, I think this filmmaker is trying to make me feel a certain way, but I don't think his cause is completely justified. So would you both argue that filmmakers going into it have to be aware of their effect on the audience, but also that audiences have to be aware that they are being told or persuaded to feel a certain way? Yes. And do either of you have suggestions as to how to best approach a film if you aren't, let's say, versed in how film works on the average consumer? So when watching a film, one usually goes in and just sits down and allows the story and the visuals to enter one's eyes and ears and you absorb it. And then by the end of it, you say, okay, that was good or that was bad. And you're done with it. What I would ask of our audience is the next time you watch a film, take a moment to pay attention to the story. Most films based off of a Hollywood system have a, or even further back, an Aristotelian story structure. And so you will have three acts to a film. You can look up those acts online and try to see the moment in which those decisions are made to push the story forward. For example, from the status quo, which sets up this world that you're seeing, and this can be anything from the land of Star Wars, you're originally seeing the ships flying out in space, and then it grounds you down into Tatooine, where you have Luke Skywalker, who then travels through space. Look out for the inciting incident in that film. What is the moment that snaps Luke into going towards this goal of becoming a Jedi and fighting this empire. Most stories that you watch nowadays are fitted to this structure. There's also cinematography, which Iggy can speak on. Would you like to speak on? I would like to speak on cinematography, but before that, I also have a little bit to say about if there's an ideal world for me, what I would like for the average audience to take into account is that most of the Hollywood systems, Hollywood studios are perfectly aware of the fact that nowadays the average audience has a very short attention span. In commercials, for example, because people are so quickly bored with commercials, commercials now become mini films that are stimulating and images change all the time and before you realize you already watched the entire thing. I think it's important for the audience to give 
some films a chance. These films are not the ones that constantly have flashing images. These films are not the ones that are quick enough. These films are the ones where you can feel a little bit bored even in the middle of it. But there are so many great films that say so much, but they don't fit into this this protocol of constantly satisfying your senses and, and immersing in it and tamper you with the fact that you don't have to work to understand the messages of these films. So do either of you or maybe even both of you have any films that you can think of off the top of your heads that are maybe more humble, at least in their appearance, or more sort of slowly paced or methodical, but that you would still recommend to people that maybe I can include as links to our episode that people can go check out? One film, and I'm really glad that Iggy brings up the topic of a slow film, one director that fascinates me and that I'm a huge fan of, although I've only seen two and a half of his films, is Andrei Tarkovsky, a Russian director from the mid-20th century. Two films that I would recommend are Stalker, which I believe was his last film, and The Sacrifice, which is a film that I watched recently. Both of these films have extremely long takes. Again, they're extremely long takes in the lack of attention span that most media consumers have nowadays. And going back to that point, just for a second, before I hand the mic over to Iggy, I would also ask our audience to watch any commercial from the last Super Bowl or a car commercial, really. I would ask you to watch a car commercial and count how many times the image is changed. That's a cut. How many times is the film cut? And then see how much time has passed. And you might be surprised at how many cuts that one commercial is. 30 seconds or 15 seconds long has. It's mind-boggling. And on my part, there are so many films made in the history of world cinema that are relatively slow to the perspective of American audiences. For most of the filmmakers who are commercially successful, the objective they had for presenting this film is to sell you stuff. They want to sell you the tickets to the movie theater. They want to sell you their products. So the act of trying to constantly satisfy our short attention span, for me, is not an ethical choice, but it's an economic choice. It's the fact that they want to make money off you and they want to please you instead of really educating. And for me, one of the most important directors who has had such a big influence on me is Antonioni, Michelangelo Antonioni. He's an Italian director. He came to prominence in the early 60s. And most of his films are shot in real time. When he shoots a scene, the characters move through the space in a relationship that's much closer to our reality than to what a Hollywood movie is supposed to be. By doing that, if the audience has enough patience, we will slowly discover that there's so much meaning in silence. There's so much meaning in boredom. There's so much meaning in navigating through a space in solitude. So most of Antonioni's films criticize contemporary society for its inability to speak to each other, to communicate with each other. And that is shown in the silences and in the gestures when the characters turn away from each other instead of confront each other. At the same time, there's an aspect of these slow films that I cannot explain because you get a sense of the happiness of real life in these films that you wouldn't get, say, in Toy Story. So could you list maybe one or two of his films that I can link to directly? 
One of my favorite by Antonioni is called L'Eclipse, the Eclipse. The Eclipse. Oh, English. It is about this this young woman who realized that she wasn't really in love. She doesn't know what it means to be in love with her lover, and to be able to figure that out, she takes some time from the relationship, and we show her navigating through the vast Italian. Suburban landscape, which is very stark, and there are many housing projects, and you see this little woman wandering, just taking such a long time wandering in the space, and then we see her going to the stock market where there are hundreds of men going crazy. They're shouting at each other, and they're sweating. They're having heart attacks, and we see this little girl who's maybe twenty years old, and she. Looks at everything, and the slowness and the, and the silence and the boredom that she experiences really come to us. We were able to empathize with her so much, even though we were not aware that the shooting this film in real time would have such an effect on us. And there's another film called Red Desert, which is also which also takes the perspective of a female character. Actually, it's the same female actress. And it talks about how this young woman who got married to a very successful husband, how she's unhappy, how she goes around to their friends' fancy apartment, and how she's not able to truly love them, to truly understand them. And I think themes like this would not be really conveyed if the filmmakers don't have the patience and the trust in the audience that they would sit down and watch these films. Yeah, I hear you, and I'm really glad that you described it that way. I think that's really interesting. I'd be interested in watching those films. I think they're probably a very good test of patience, and I think that everyone could always use more patience. So I'll be sure to make some time to check those out. Before we had begun recording this episode, we had talked about the language of film, and Hector, you had talked about how important you think that is to understand. Can you guys elaborate on what you think that means? Because I'm not someone who's trained in film. I certainly enjoy a film or two, but I'm not. Classically trained. I think one incredible aspect of film that most people aren't aware of is the use of light and also the use of lenses. Watching a great movie or a great television show, one is not aware of the camera at all, and that means one is not aware of the cuts that occur are natural or are more natural or seamless. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. It's what you call an invisible cut. So I would ask our audience to look for. One thing I would say: look at the image itself. Pause the film at a moment. If you can see a large space, and the people fit in the space closer to how we see it with our own eyes, then it's likely that they're using a wide lens. On the opposite end of that are frames in a film in which you have an extreme close-up, and the lights in the background are blurred. Or invisible. That's using a long lens. So in that case, the light that is being grabbed is from a very thin amount of space, and so the rest of it is blurry because it's away from this depth of field. If you're knowledgeable in photography and have taken photographs before, you probably know this. But to our audience, I would recommend pausing your film or television show at a few points and paying attention to. The space and how the space is compressed when it's cut. Secondly, I would ask you to look at the lights in a TV show or a movie. When you film anything, you are flooding that set with light usually, and so there's light coming from everywhere in order to allow the lens to pick that up. One interesting example of use of light in a film 
is Citizen Kane. They used a very small aperture on the camera, which means that only a small amount of light could come in. But in doing that, they were able to flood the sets with light, use wide lenses, and capture every single thing in the shot. So they have huge spaces that are visible. And the fact that they used such a small aperture, which is just the hole on the lens, it's because that smaller the hole, the more in focus everything is. The bigger the hole, only one thing can be in focus. And the objects from different distances will be completely blurry. And the director wants the audience to see everything in Citizen Kane. And that's why he made a choice of using a ridiculous amount of light and keeping a really tiny hole on the camera. Which is a very luxurious way of doing things. And now lots of filmmakers just don't have the money to flood the sets with light. And I agree with what Hector is saying, that lighting, editing, and sound mixing are aspects in filmmaking that are not very familiar to the average audience. These aspects, very ironically, will not make the audience aware of their existence. The more well done these aspects are, the less obvious they are. For example, when we record sounds, we will realize that everything it's mushed together. You cannot tell things from far apart. Lots of things that you could pick up with your ears will get lost in the sound recording. That's why sound engineers need to come in and adjust the frequency and volume of the sound in order to make it sound like a background sound. Also, for example, in sound mixing, when we close the door, the recorded version of the door closing actually don't sound quite like the the way one would imagine a door the closing. One, the one would imagine a door closing. That's why we have Foley artists who put their fists in the snow to imitate the sound of a door closing. I don't know if that's correct, but they do all kinds of strange things to make sounds, sounds natural. But that is really interesting that we don't always record, or at least that filmmakers don't always record the actual sound to indicate to the audience what they are. And I mm-hmm. think that it's intriguing that maybe we have come to associate certain noises with what we imagine that door sounds like on the mm-hmm. film. In the media class that I know I've probably referred to three times or so now, on a chapter on Bollywood films, mm-hmm. I learned quite a bit about how Indian filmmakers view some films, especially Hollywood films. And I know that Jurassic Park actually did very well in India when it was initially released, but that was more out of curiosity on the part of the Indian audience than it was out of legitimate appeal. And so, at least from what I've learned, it sounds like Bollywood filmmakers will still transcribe or transpose certain films into Hindi or other languages spoken in India, but that none have done as well as Jurassic Park did. But in certain films that they've tried to transpose, they will add three things according to the chapter that I read. The first being song, the second being an expanded narrative, and the third being emotion, because these Indian filmmakers contend that American films don't have emotion in the same way, it's not as legitimate or as profound. And their audiences, at least based on box office success, have responded accordingly. And they have continued to go to films that these Indian directors have made. And so I know there's a lot there, but the one direct question I have is, how do you feel about filmmakers sort of determining what audiences want and what they get? Because maybe Indian audiences don't know any other world, but one in which their films have songs and narratives and emotions. And I'm curious to sort of see as filmmakers how you guys feel about that. I think in the case of Bollywood films, it's a question of cultural history because as what you said that in most of Bollywood films, there isn't a specific genre. You can't have a film be sad or melancholic and then you can't have a film only be happy and comedic. 
most of the Bollywood films are made is that in episodes within the films, there are very tragic moments, there are very happy moments, there are very melancholic moments. One of the prerequisite for a successful Bollywood film is that it has all kinds of emotions boxing this thing. And this is due to the Hindu tradition of folkloric performance, where the more emotions there are, the more entertaining it is for the, for the Indian audience. And I should include that in India, there are so many kinds of languages and, and ethnicities. So even within their districts, they have different preferences and popular film styles. But I think Hector could maybe explain about broader aspects of what appeals to specific audience. Yeah, and I would even go back to the neorealists in Italy who were coming out of this. They were leaving World War II. Their country was in a different shape than it had been before the war. And so a lot of the stories that came out through this medium of film, again, were not in this Hollywood style, but were in a way that reached out to people because they were, in fact, including people as their actors. The people who lived in these towns that they shot in were their actors. One interesting example of a film being done differently is Fellini. When Fellini would cast his films, he would not do what we imagine as a classical cast call with, you know, script reading in front of whoever, but he would have a advertisement in a newspaper and he would invite anybody to come in to meet with him and Essentially, if he liked your face or he liked your style or liked how you were, he would cast you. And usually if you were a doctor, he would cast you as a doctor because that's what you were best at. That's what you looked like. That's what you seemed like. So I think one interesting thing is that there is a danger with going to a film school nowadays in America and having your sight narrowed down by the Hollywood system because it's become almost so mathematical that we forget these aspects, these parts of our own reality that can exist in these films. And in other cultures, for example, with Bollywood films or with neorealist Italian films, there's a lot more, I want to say, soul. There's a lot more humanity. There's a lot more personality to them because they are coming from this rich culture and not from this mathematical formula that is the Hollywood system of making film. And following what Hector said, in addition to the cultural aspects of films appeal, where different films appeal to different audiences, I think there's also a chronological aspect. For example, in the 60s, we will be shocked if we see a sex scene in the film. And the audience back then have a completely different set of aesthetics and expectations for the films. And nowadays, we don't know what it is because we have the internet and the style and trends constantly evolve. So I guess it's a difficult question. I can tell you that there's a chronological aspect of it. And if we go back to the past, we can discover, oh, why is it that the audience back then liked these films? And why is it that we like these films at the present? But it's always harder to reflect on the present than to reflect the past. Kip, I'm also very interesting in knowing about your media studies class. It's very interesting that you talked about Bollywood films. I want to ask you, what are the most surprising things that you've learned in that class about media? Well, I'll try and focus it on film, and I would gladly have further conversations about other things we've learned, like TV. But specific to film, one author, I believe her name is Hortense Powdermaker. I can link people to that name if they'd like, but I'm completely serious on that one. She begins a chapter on Hollywood arguing that it satisfies a certain need in the modern man, although I think she means the modern individual, that society has sort of taken away, that 
We live a very cushy life in many ways that we don't have to worry about action or finding our own food. For the most part, at least people that are living in relative wealth, life is relatively easy. And I know I'm overusing that word, but her argument is that we don't get emotional satisfaction or emotional thrills in the way that maybe people in the past are believed to have. And so she argues that we go to films seeking those emotions and sort of have that addiction to them. And in many ways, she argues Hollywood filmmakers show us emotions that we maybe didn't know we had. And so we develop an emotional dependence on these films or on Hollywood to give us that satisfaction again. Maybe we see love in a romantic comedy and we feel it in a certain way. And so we want to go back and keep watching because that's how great that emotion is or that's how raw and personal it feels. So I think she makes a very critical argument. She's bothered by how much impact and how much influence Hollywood has on the modern individual. And I think in many ways she's right. But she also argues that one real problem in her opinion is that Hollywood and other large film studios or studio communities alike have a very large business contribution rather than artists. And so she's bothered by the fact that it's financial, that if you have enough money, you can make a film. It's not about artistic desire. It's not about your vision. It's about how much money you have. And that is problematic that we live in a society where if you do have the money, you can make that film. It's not about how novel or how much potential you have, which is unfortunate in my opinion. And that's one point that I think will resonate with me. And she also argues, as many other authors in the class that we've read do, that Hollywood and other films show us realities that we desire, which then make us doubt our own, that films we watch sometimes make us sad about our own environments, even if there's nothing wrong. If you see a better version of yourself or a better version of your hometown, maybe you start to doubt who you are, or where you've come from. And I think that's rather problematic because I'm sure before films, people weren't really thinking that way about their communities or about themselves. So those are some things that I've learned. Flipping the question back around to you two, I know that you both make films as film majors. And my first question would be what your first filming experience was like. And if you remember maybe editing it, if it felt different than the actual shooting, or if you felt with the finished product that it wasn't quite what you wanted, or maybe, maybe it went amazing. I'm just thinking of my own experiences. I've had less than perfect media production. I'd be curious if you guys have words on that. I think one of my favorite things about making a film, and I made my first film about a year ago in 2014, which I don't think is online, but I made it for my directing class. And one awesome thing about making a film is that you plan and you plan and you plan and you have this structure in your head for how exactly you want it to be. But as soon as you get on set, it's a group experience. It's a group job. And what happens when you have multiple people working with you to create one vision is that things happen spontaneously. Things happen out of the blue. You end up improvising, whether that has to be with light because it's a cloudy day and you wanted a sunny day or the way something works or the way an actor moves, whatever. The amount of spontaneity on a set I think is one of the coolest things. What do you think, Ig? The first time that I made the film, I was filled with despair in a way, because prior to that, I was not aware of all these aspects. As I said, sound mixing, lighting, editing. I wasn't aware of these aspects, and I always thought, oh, you know, you go to this room and you film things, and then you naturally flow together. And I was so ignorant of the art of making film in every aspect. So when my film turns out, I was completely baffled. 
was thinking to myself, this space doesn't look like the space that I experience in real life. The performance is not how I exactly imagined it. And it doesn't look like one of these great films that I loved for so long. So I think that frustration luckily turned into this passion for learning about filmmaking, learning how do you make this image look realistic. The more work you put into it, the more trickery you use to create this illusion, the more natural it looks. So for me, it's learning about the making of the illusion. I hear you. And while I can't relate on a film production level in editing these podcast episodes, I've often been baffled by how much time I spend agonizing over little details and re-listening to. I mean, a 30-minute episode could take me up to two hours or so to listen to and piece together certain elements and make it sound the way I want it to. So I have to imagine that film, when you have both audio and visual components, becomes infinitely more difficult and complex. I'd also like to ask maybe what you guys are looking to learn in film as you continue filming and pursuing it as a passion, what you'd like to try maybe? I think one thing that I'm still not very good with is the creation of an illusion of space. For example, we always have paradigms. We say, oh, you have a white shot and you show everything so the audience knows the space. But so many times the space we see on film looks so drastically different in real life. There's a YouTube video I saw of a favorite cinematographer of mine, and he was showing the location in which he shot one of my favorite films. And when I saw that location in another video without all the cinematography and production elements, I was shocked. I was thinking to myself, this looks so ugly. This doesn't look like the poetic wall in Indonesia at all. It's a wall in Indonesia. So for me, it just became a question of how you're able to put away your preconceived concept of how this space looks like and only look at the image you try to create and try to give yourself a fresh set of eyes and see if this space conveys what you want it to convey instead of just purely replicating the shape and the lighting of that space in real life. For me personally, I diverge from cinematography currently. I've been doing a lot of work in studying story and trying to dissect story and with that, I mean, watching a film, you can you can watch a film and just let it pass by. But if you piece all the elements together, what makes a film great? What makes a story so tight and strong that you want to watch it over and over again? It's hard to say. And it's possible to make it into this mathematical equation, say, well, this leads to this and this leads to that. Writing a story and creating a story that's really different and moving, that fascinates me. And that's what I want to keep exploring right now is how to make a story that people respond to and that's and that's effective and beautiful and not the same old same old kip i'm very happy that you mentioned the media class and this author you read because the idea of addiction really interests me in the media world you talked about the financial aspect of filmmaking and i want to ask you do you think that Addiction is the exponential thing in the sense that when it first drags audience within in front of itself, these films, you see the cost for not only the addiction of the audience to come in, but also for a further request to satisfy this desire to see another reality and see that reality, that virtual reality on the film as more legitimate than your own, this escapist sentiment. At least as far as I understand, sort of what you're getting at. I think both sides can be addictive, but I think maybe you're looking more at the audience. Yeah, I definitely think seeing an amazing thing or being really immersed in a wonderful world of a film or even wonderful characters. I think there are small portions of film that have really 
stood out to me, and they've probably lasted maybe two or three minutes on screen, but they were still very potent. I mean, Interstellar, which I watched this past November, was personally a favorite of mine. I know a lot of people that were very critical of it, and I can understand that, but I teared up and cried very openly at numerous parts that were very brief, and I think it's because of how Christopher Nolan and, of course, the cast, as well as various others, Hans Zimmer with the soundtrack, all put that together. But regarding films in general, I think it can be really problematic when an audience shows such a positive regard for a film because then there's a precedent to make another film, make a sequel. And maybe you guys could speak to this to a degree, but I think many sequels in film often get worse and worse. Not always. Certainly there are some that are really good, but I think when money gets in the way, filmmakers and film producers are often drawn to that, perhaps get distracted by that idea. There are so many film series like Fast and the Furious where, you know, at a certain point it becomes almost satirical how many films they make. And I think it's purely because of money, but clearly, you know, if an audience speaks with their wallet, they seem to enjoy these films. And so, yeah, perhaps it is an addiction, but I would argue maybe it's a two-way thing and that one side at one point or another has to say, well, that's it. We're going to try something else or we're going to go in a different route. But it's a self-sustaining addiction, I think, in that way, because both sides are benefiting. Mm. Another question that I have for you is that have you personally felt after watching certain films that your reality doesn't feel as legitimate as the realities on the screen? Because personally, my opinion is that I've seen so many people, including myself, who are so absorbed into this poetic, heightened world that it's hard to see your own reality as legitimate and fun and enjoyable. To a degree, that's totally something I've experienced, although I think it's less in the sense that I think my own world is boring and more the idea that after the film or whatever media it is, is over, I'm still thinking about it. I'm still sort of envisioning it, maybe even in some way projecting it into my own reality and sort of thinking about what if those characters or those events had taken place where I live. But it's more a fascination with what I've seen than a disappointment in what I've experienced. But I totally hear what you're saying. And I remember when Avatar came out, there were a lot of people that reported, and I think there were news stories on it, tremendous disappointment with Earth as being this non-beautiful environment. And they saw the planet that he had created And they were so disappointed with how Earth paled in comparison. And I think that's maybe problematic that human vision and human imagination did that to someone or, you know, a group of people. But I have felt that before. Do either of you have questions or maybe suggestions for the audience? I think you've already made some amazing suggestions to look for certain things in film. But any last comments you'd like to make? The last comments I guess I want to make is that I really wished my peers or just people in general would be more open to films that don't necessarily please. Films that might be slower, films that might depress you, films that document some historical events that you might not know. And I think we need to be aware of the fact that there are people who are making money off of our weaknesses, of our short attention span. I think we would be stronger individuals if we were able to not being slaved by that. Well, the reason I want to bring up this topic in the first place is because I wanted to encourage whichever audience members that are listening to really take in the films and video media that we consume critically. And I believe that even if film in a philosophical form isn't so much a language as it is something else, I would argue that it is a means of communicating that we all have access to now that we have even iPhones and such powerful cameras and audio recording software within our pockets. I think we should all be 
hyper aware of the illusions of film. And I think we should be critical of the films that are so popular and so hyped up by the media, as well as being critical of the celebrity culture that is often attached with film in this day. I think that film is accessible to anyone because we in our generation and in our time have absolutely so much access to it. So I would encourage everyone who's listening to this to really take in your film consumption always with a grain of salt and to always look critically because you will be more powerful for it. And I think society would be more powerful for it if they can see beyond the illusion and can break it down. We'd be a stronger people for that. And I hope you all listened to what Hector Nagy had to say. I don't think I have anything to add as someone who's not as well-versed. And of course, if you want to respond to some of these things, you can reach us at Twitter, at Stride and Saunter, via email, strideandsaunter at gmail.com. Our Facebook is Stride and Saunter. And of course, our website, which we encourage you to visit, is strideandsaunter.com. And Iggy, thank you very much for joining us. I was really happy you could be here. Of course. And actually, to our audience out there, I know this was a bit of a longer episode, but we felt it was worth it. This is actually going to be Hector's last episode as co-host. The show will continue. But before I say anything, Hector, I'd really like to hear any last thoughts you have or maybe reactions to this process. So to our audience, to everyone who's listened up to this point, or if you've listened to just a few episodes, I want to thank you. This was, again, a project that came out of Kip and I's hearts. It was spontaneous, and it came to be because we wanted it to happen. And so my final message to anyone who is listening is to be excited about what you do. If you're not excited about what you do, find what it is you're excited about. And go for it with all the energy that you have and with all your heart because you are probably capable of a lot more than you think you're capable of doing. And take advantage of the resources around you. Take advantage of the people around you and let them take advantage of you in the best way possible. Take advantage of the lack of resources around you. That too. Yeah. Kip and I made this podcast because we wanted to encourage conversation about topics and things and ideas that aren't spoken about that often for whatever reason, because we live in an age of information overload. So we wanted to narrow down some of these thoughts. I would encourage all of you to explore what you truly want to do and to do it because life is beautiful and it's worth it. I completely agree. I've really enjoyed having you as a co-host, and I'm thrilled that you asked me back in August to pursue this with you because it's been like no other experience I've had, and it's probably one of the things that I'm most proud of in my life, and I'm so blessed to call you a co-host. I think that it wouldn't have worked as well or in quite the same way with anyone else. You've been very articulate and heartfelt, which I think has been perhaps most prominent in this episode, and I'm really glad that we gave it a really good conversation. You are, of course, always welcome back. I was thrilled to do this with you, and I look forward to future episodes and hope that they ring true to the vision that you and I originally set out with. For one last time with Hector and myself in the same studio, as always, we thank you for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Hector Marrero. Have a good night.